Welcome back to another episode of No Laughing Matter with Cuba Pete. I'm Pedro Joe Greer. I'm the dean at the uh, Roseman University College of Medicine. And we have a podcast here, and the purpose of this podcast is the intersection of what happens in society and how we can change medical education and the physicians for the future to truly respond to what's needed. For too long, our professions sat in silos. I'm a liver specialist. Apparently, that's all I was supposed to be interested in. But a liver's attached to a body, and that body's attached to family, and they're attached to other people, and there's a lot of things that can affect it. We have some of the most spectacular guests on this show, and today I want to present somebody to you who is one of the most impressive individuals I have had the pleasure of meeting. His name is David Marlin. David, welcome on the show. Thanks. It's an honor to be here, Pete. Dave, David has some incredible stories. He's originally from New York, I got to say that, because Lou is from New York, so you, got, you can't miss that part. It's one of my favorite offshore islands, I got to tell you. But Las Vegas is my home. That is exactly right. He is co-founder of Vegas Strong and now runs Crossroads. Am I correct with that? Yes, both of those items. He has a fascinating background, having done his undergraduate work in New York at the, uh, I'm not mistaken, the uh, New York State University? Yeah, SUNY Stony Brook. Okay. Got a degree in economics. And then here in Las Vegas at UNLV, you had two degrees, MBA. Yes, a master's in business. And a master's in science and behavioral health, addiction. You're an addictionologist. I mean, you got a whole list. Apart from that, he's also a great golfer, a triathlete, and a boxer. So don't get him mad, because you know he's not going to get tired chasing you. <laughs> and if he catches you, he's a boxer. I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> David, you have an incredible story. You really do. How did you come to this? How did you get there? Uh, I moved from New York to Las Vegas in 1988, and I started working at an HMO. You know, at the time, I was... Uh, you know, I was a whippersnapper who uh, was adept at business and computers. And I worked there for 20 years while this insurance company really began automated everything. And as a younger professional with a proclivity to computers, uh, I ended up being able to use my skill to go in various departments, whether it was product development, uh, I ended up running underwriting, I ended up running the claims department, I had progressive jobs up to CEO of the insurance company. Um, when I became saved from myself in 2005, and I went to treatment for a, an alcohol problem, uh, I ended up having a skill set that was critical for being able to provide treatment, which was I was completely understanding of the, the U.S. payer system. So uh, I opened up a little 10-bed rehab, and what I considered penance was my problems now became getting prior authorization and getting claims paid for the, for the next 15 years of <laughs> my career. Now you're on the other side of the fence. <laughs> I, I was, and uh, I lamented some of my prior behavior <laughs> <laughs> during that journey. Uh, but, but I built this rehab from a 10-bed to a 400-bed treatment center and ended up helping uh, now just over 9,000 people get clean and sober. And... Uh, to, to me, what I tell people is that I thought I was rich when I had the fancy CEO job and I had a big paycheck. Being able to be useful and help people get clean, that's really rich. 
and, uh, and I'm grateful for my opportunity. About two years ago, the board at Crossroads asked me to help them because they were going bankrupt. And uh, while I was retired, uh, it was a skill set that I had. And I'm grateful that Crossroads is now Joint Commission accredited. We are full today and helping about 75% of our clients are homeless. Uh, we enroll, about a quarter of them, we roll, enroll them into Medicaid. So they're not connected to any payer system. So I'm, I'm grateful to be, uh, be useful. So you take this beyond treatment for uh, an addiction. You're actually getting benefits for these individuals that can last them their life or until they get a job with full insurance and things of that nature. So you're covering all these angles. And when you became sober and you made this decision, mm -hmm. what sparked you to do this decision? Was it your upbringing? Was it? Um, I have a 19-year-old son, and I'd end up coming home and uh, I saw my three-year-old son and his mom, and I could rationalize that his mom was mean. Uh, I could not rationalize not wanting to be with a perfect three-year-old boy. Uh, so he ended up helping me see, get insight into my own behavior. So it is, it is in that moment that I decided to seek help. And the idea that me, an Italian oldest male from New York, is gonna say help, is contra to the way I'm wired. Yes. But it ended up being the best thing I ever did was uh, saying I need help. Well, the best thing, not just for you and your family, but for 9,000 other people. Yeah. Um, and who knows how many people I would have continued to hurt in my selfish prior behavior. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, there was a report that came out in 2013, 2014, that almost 7% of Nevadans had an alcohol problem. And, and that is in line with SAMHSA's data. Uh, they say about 9% 9 of now. U.S. And of, uh, this is looking at individuals from the age of 12 on. It was a SAMHSA mm -hmm. study, by the way. Yeah. And of that, 3% have an illicit drug problem, mm -hmm. which I think is an underestimation of what's going on. And as we were discussing earlier, in 2017, Ann Case, an economist from Princeton, published a paper and she's the one that does morbidity and mortality in this country, called Deaths of Despair. And for the first time in 100 years, the United States of America saw an increase in deaths, not a decrease in deaths. And it was almost exclusively boomers, mm -hmm. non-Hispanic males, but the three leading causes of death were suicide, opioid overdose, and alcoholic liver disease, all with underlining behavioral health issues. How big is the problem of lack of behavioral health professionals in this country? Well, first, I want to mention that in 2020, we had more overdose deaths than we've ever had in the history of the United States. And when we check data now, we saw dramatic spikes in illicit drug use, which occurred during the pandemic. So not only was the problem as bad as it's ever been, but it's, it's absolutely getting worse. So this is an, a critical, acute problem for our city, for our country right now. A, an acute problem superimposed on a chronic problem that we didn't take care of before either. Agreed. Um, let, let me ask you a question. As an educator, now in the process of putting together a brand new curriculum to, pre to prepare the future physician for America, not the way I was trained. Things have changed. Computers, you love computers. Technology, yes. doctors are afraid of them analytics, metrics, all things that improve. 
The company you went to work for in 1988, an HMO, it's very interesting, but do you know when the concept of prepaid care came out in this country? Right after the Great Depression. Hmm. And we've never had the political will to make it go. Now we're starting to get in that direction where you can have systems that can actually help. Uh, but with your experience, and I'm going to say you're a pretty uh, brilliant fellow, what would you recommend to us as an outsider that says, doctors miss this? Uh, I would say two things. One, start with yourself. Rather than going to change the world, start with yourself and you know, recognize that one in 10 of you have an alcohol or a substance use issue and you're probably in denial and you're probably telling yourself you don't have it. So recognizing that there's, there's nothing wrong with, with asking for help, it's totally reasonable and protected by CFR 42 as well as HIPAA for you to go get a private drug and alcohol assessment mm -hmm. and you know, get, a, get a barometer check to see where you are because too many of us are struggling and, and it's okay to get help. And you were talking about being an Italian from New York and you're not, well, you know, in medicine, we're, the, the culture of medicine also tells us we're tough, we don't complain. And smart. And smart, and so that's the worst combination that you could possibly have. Especially since the brain's natural, natural defense mechanisms is to tell you that you're okay. And when you're having a few drinks or you're taking some medication, and it's reducing the capacity of your frontal lobe, I'm sorry, but you don't know. Your brain is tricking you. And, and to, to be able to understand that and get true awareness of that takes help from outside. And, and it's interesting as a liver specialist uh, that when a patient comes in, they will tend to downplay the amount of alcohol they drink. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the tricks that one of my mentors taught me was not to ask how much do you drink, you ask what do you drink? and then give them an exaggerated amount, and they'll always come back. I drink beer, do you drink two cases a day? No, I never drink more than one. And so, but it's important for a, a patient to understand that when a physician asks this question, it's for their health. I Not also like that Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. Exactly. And I encourage <laughs> you to, to do a UA, uh -huh. and I encourage you to take a look at levels, to, to use that as a therapeutic tool to help the client. Trust but verify. Trust but verify. That's right. <laughs> I love it. It's a good thing we remember those days. <laughs> yes. Now, now, the second issue, the first was to look at yourself. The second is, is the community. Um, many people know someone who's struggling. We had talked earlier about the homeless problem. There's too many people struggling in our community. What I learned running Solutions Recovery is we didn't just have problem patients that came in. We had diseased family systems, and that we needed to help treat the whole family system. With our community, the whole community right now is engaging in unhealthy behavior, and by supporting people who are engaging in, in daily illicit drug use, that's enabling. And instead of propagating that unhealthy behavior, it's important all of us get together and, and try to direct these people to care. And whether it's through the shelter system, through the hospital system, through the behavioral health system, these people who are struggling don't need 20 bucks. These people who are struggling, they need health care. Yes, I agree with you. And health care has to get out of its silo. Yeah. In other words, we realize that in health care, 80% of all diseases have a non-biologic cause. 
Right now in the United States of America, it's your zip code is the most important aspect for your survival, not your genetic code. And we saw that with COVID. So if we as physicians isolate ourselves to only the disease, we're doing nothing really to help the patient. So th th these non-biological causes we call social determinants of health. It could be, like you said, the family unit. It could be transportation. It could be food inequities. It could be racism. It could be a lot of different things that occur in society that we need to train our future physicians in if they really want to make this country healthier. Because if you look at the statistics of the United States of America, we have more patents than anybody else. We got the top of the line equipment. However, our survival, we rank it's in the, it's, it's, it's not only decreasing, we're falling behind third world nations. And so we have to bring back this pride that we want to be number one. And we want to be number one in making everybody healthy. So you have the most complicated case, a homeless individual with a substance abuse problem. And understanding that people with substance abuses, especially from lower socioeconomic areas or any area, once they lose their job, they're going to steal from family and friends. And when you steal from family and friends, that closes doors. And you got to bring that door back open and really help these people. Talk to me a little about that, because really, I started my career with the homeless. This was in the uh, early 1980s when crack was an issue. Crack and then AIDS hit, so that was interesting. And talking about Reagan, we had a big recession back then, too. Right. But, I mean, tell me what it's like today. Well, first, I'm going to tell you that when I was a kid in Long Beach, one of my best friends, we swam out to the sandbar, he ended up holding me under the water. When he held me under the water, even though he was my best friend, I started kicking and punching him because I'm physiologically dependent on oxygen. And even though I love this person, I would hurt them to get what I need. Now, if you put, once you pull me out of the water and you put me next to my friend, I still love him, he's still yeah. my friend, but I had to hurt him to get what I needed. Now, I use that same analogy for somebody who is physiologically dependent on opiates. Mom, dad, they love you, they physiologically need to get the opiates. So we, we need to separate the disease from the behavior. And the issue for a person who is struggling isn't incarceration, it's not blaming, it's not hatred. It's just get them treatment to physiologically set them from, separate them from the substance and then begin the longer process of psychologically separating them from the substance. How many David Marlins do we need in Clark County to have enough treatment beds? Um, we definitely need more. If we use the SAMHSA numbers we talked about and there's 2 million people, it means we have 180,000 people with a substance use disorder in this valley. That's a lot of treatment that we need to give. Fortunately, a lot of it can be delivered at an outpatient level of care. So we do have to stop the healthcare system's prevention of treatment methods of managing costs and move to in encouraging, maybe even doing outreach to get people outpatient care so we could reduce the amount of people that need inpatient acute care. We, we certainly need more of both, though. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If you actually had enough treatment centers, that would improve somebody's health in the long term. And even if there's recidivism, while they're in the treatment center, they're clean. Right. And there's going to be recidivism in anything in the world that occurs, but it's all these other support services that they need to have. 
right? To be able Which, to make... with case management, we get them plugged into. When you talk about uh, relapse rates, I want you to know when you compare asthma, hypertension, diabetes, and someone goes in because they have high blood pressure and they see a doc and they get some treatment, the relapse rates are very similar to those chronic illnesses as they are to addiction. So just because you've sent one person to treatment and they, they needed multiple treatments, if that, you sent that same person in to see an oncologist and they ended up needing 90 days of chemo for a third or fourth time, no one would yell at them that you need more cancer treatment. We would get them help. I, we we I, need to use the same attitude to help treat people with substance use disorders. And, and not only that, we as physicians need to be able to look at this much wider than just the blood pressure. We check your blood pressure every time you come in. We don't ask you if you have a job every time you come in. Or all these, give, them, give them a UA. You know, yeah, or give them a UA. Uh, because a urinary analysis does share a lot of information. We, we work with our lab and they test all of their, lab, all their, uh, all their UAs system-wide and they're the ones who are pointing out the dramatic increase in illicit drugs to us. So it's, it's really real-time data that we're getting, but I'm seeing 30, 40% in increases during the pandemic in opiate use. And we need to look at it outside of hospitals. I used to chair the Drug Policy Research Center at the Rand Corporation back in the late hmm. 80s, early 90s. And it was interesting because the only data we had was hospital data. Hmm. So the only data we had from emergency rooms were UAs. But you have to know how a doctor behaves in, in the emergency room. We don't get a UA on everybody. Right. We only get it on the ones we suspect. Yeah. So you're getting a skewed data. Right. It, must, it might have been much, much greater. It probably was. But if the complaint wasn't related to it or the patient didn't look like they were on a substance, there was no reason to test. Mm -hmm. Although it could be an incredibly strong contributing factor. As well as substance abuse exacerbates hypertension, exacerbates asthma, mm -hmm. heart disease, uh, cardiovascular disease, and it all fits together. You can't separate these things out. You have to take the whole human being as you have done. Yeah. By the way, I've already asked you, but I'm gonna, I want you to take it even further. You gave me two examples of things we could do different in medical school. Mm -hmm. How often do we have to bring this point up of addiction and behavioral health? Because it can't just be a class. It has to run through like a thread, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And uh, even in the behavioral health care profession, I talk to marriage and family therapists, I talk to social workers who are clearly not trained in treating substance use disorders, and, and I wouldn't want them talking to any of our clients. So you have to recognize just because you're a doctor doesn't mean I'm going to want you to treat a cardiac patient or, or a, 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 you know, somebody who needs you know, uh, you know, any other discipline. Um, in behavioral health, there's different disciplines as well. And if you have a family system issue, having an MFT help is important. If you have a substance use issue, you know, most counselors are trained to try to help clients reach their goals. You know, when I came in, I would have said my goal is I would like to be able to drink and use a little bit of cocaine and I'd like you to get my wife to stop complaining and my boss to stop being such a nag. Those would be the treatment goals that I would have asked you to do when I came in. Now, being a substance use counselor, we recognize that I can't ask, I can't help you achieve those goals. I need to help you get some insight into your behavior so you understand what it's really doing to you.
The importance of what happens is not just to you, but to your family. And you saw that with your son. Tell me about that experience. Uh, at the time, I would have told you that I never had a DUI. I still had a job. I had a fancy house in Summerlin. Uh, I still had a wife. So I had a lot of delusional that I, or a lot of delusion that I was fine, that my only problems were her, you, everyone else. Uh, I needed a long-term treatment to be able to gain insight into myself and behavior. And I'd built up a tremendous amount of denial telling myself that I was fine. And it was about two years before I truly became sober and a sober person where that if I would stub my toe and I'd have pain, my first thought wasn't Jack Daniels. Uh, it, it was a progression that happened. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be 16 years sober today. Knock on wood. The, uh, well, I got to tell you something. As a new and fully invested Las Vegan, thank God you're here. Thank God you're here not for just what you're doing, but what you're saying and how you're saying it and with the passion. David, if somebody wants to get in contact with you or your organization through social media or however, how can they do that? I'm available on uh, LinkedIn as David Marlin. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter as Dave Marlin. Uh, I have uh, Snapchat and uh, TikTok accounts. Or you can just email david.marlin at vegasstronger.org. Fantastic. You know, our society is better because of people like David Marlin. I can tell you one thing. We're going to make medical education better also, and we're going to take your suggestions, and I'm booking you already. All righty? Sounds good. Thank you. Well, that's today's episode of No Laughing Matter with Cuba Pete, live from Studio A in Las Vegas. Everybody, have a great week. When I play the maracas, I go chick, chicky, boom, chick, chick.